You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, if you could be a fly on the wall for one historical figure, who would it be and when? You know, I've been thinking about this, and one moment in history that has always fascinated me is John Wilkes Booth. Just the fact that, I think the turning point for me was always when I when I found out that he was like 26 when when he did what he did which is so crazy because then it stops being a thing. I guess you always think of him as like a middle-aged man. It stops being a, the actions of a, of a determined man and starts being like just a, a you know, a, a bizarre and, and manipulated figure. So I, I feel like we don't understand him very much because we just think of him as the guy who shot Lincoln. He escapes and he is in this barn, Garrett's barn in the final hours of his life, hanging out, uh, hiding out with his accomplice. And I've always been interested in what was going through his head in those moments. Other than this in, bullet. I've always been interested in what was going through, through <laughs> Booth's mind because there is, I mean, I, I wrote a, a short film about it once that um, never got produced and probably will never get produced because who wants to make that? But, you know, I guess the question becomes like, you know, it's a 26-year-old on the run and it's a 26-year-old who was was privileged and spoiled and always thought that he was going to be adored and was jealous of his brother and his you know his famous dad and his famous brother and and apparently thought that when he shot Lincoln he'd be celebrated as a hero and here he is hiding out in a barn was he defiantly proud to the end was he scared did he feel regret i mean they wanted to bring him in alive and if it weren't for uh, I believe the man's name was Everett Conger, uh, who pointed a gun inside the barn and, and shot Booth. They would have taken him alive, and maybe we would have had some answers. And quite frankly, maybe we would have gotten more answers on the massive conspiracy involved in assassinating Lincoln and all the kidnappings that were supposed to happen. But instead, um, yeah, he died. And reportedly, his final words were looking at his hands and saying, useless, useless. But was that serious? Was he being dramatic? Was he? Uh, we don't know, and I just—it's a fascinating. He's a fascinating figure. So, if I could be there, I would want to be in Garrett's barn before uh, John Wilkes Booth was shot. Just also as a point of order, twenty-six back then was like middle age. So, <laughs> it's not like today where if you're twenty-six and you're still a useless piece of shit, everyone's just like, ah, that's just their generation. They don't grow up until they hit forty-two. Also, you basically just described his life as, like, succession. Yeah, I mean, you know. The dopey little rich kid who wants to impress his his daddy. 
Well, that's so if they I'm, brought him in, maybe he would have wrapped some uh, notorious B.I.G. as they brought him in, like Kendall Roy or something. That is that is kind of the thing that makes him so fascinating. Is I feel like he's the one who, because most Americans don't know who Charles Gateau is. Uh, most Americans don't know Leon Cholgosh. Uh, we know uh, we know so much about Lee Harvey Oswald. Um, obviously, he's been poured over, but we we all anybody knows about John Wilkes Booth really is he was an actor and a racist, and he shot the president. But there's just he's just a, I mean you know the 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 amount of of what has been John Wilkes Booth that echoes you know centuries later I think is so interesting. I, anyway, Garrett's barn, John Wilkes Booth. That's my fly on the wall historical moment. <laughs> the second I got this question, I knew exactly what my answer was going to be because it's kind of a joke, but also kind of serious because I wanted I really would love to see one this guy doing this. But also all of the people around him just accepting that this is happening. Oh no! Oh no! You know what I'm about to say? I have two thoughts. It could be neither. I'm so afraid. I really want to be a fly on the roll for any and all of the meetings Lyndon Johnson would have while he was taking a shit. Oh, thank you. Because God. I really, really one. I want to see him stern-faced having a meeting. Just taking a dump, his giant Lyndon Johnson out. But I also want to see everyone having to deal with this. Like, just Pete, just like guys who fought in World War II, who are now like advisors to the president. They're like three star generals, and they're like, what the fuck is happening? Why are we dealing with any of this? But he's the president, so I guess we have to deal with this dick swinging maniac just giving us orders while he's pinching off a loaf. <laughs> That's truly... Like, I know, Nixon not deleting the fucking tape recordings is probably the craziest thing a president has ever done. Well, maybe second to Andrew Jackson just walloping people with his big old whomping stick, which was a runner-up for me. I wanted to be there while he just whomped on people. So, I want to see Lyndon Johnson just absolutely taking the White House plumbing to task while he's getting news. That's my answer. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, our political Pawnee pal is back. Amanda Rush is here for 1960's Primary. Our guest today previously worked on the 2016 presidential campaign as a field organizer before working in digital organizing and communications for political campaigns and nonprofits. But most importantly, she classifies herself as an honorary Pawnee resident. We'll happily talk to you about why the Galactic Republic was gerrymandered and is currently vying for the title of You're Missing Out Senior Washington Correspondent because she joined us last season. She is back again. Amanda Rush is back on the show. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be back. 
Thank you for coming back. Let's see what uh does anyone want to take bets right now and see what um world-shattering event this episode is about to proceed. <laughs> so that we can't not address it. Um you are the Amanda, you might be the only person who if you does, said Does Joe Biden get into a, a gangs in New York knife fight with uh, <laughs> Joe Manchin on the steps of uh the White House. Tom, just Tom, bloody. the more guesses you make, the more cursed this episode becomes because we've had that in the past. So to clarify for anybody uh, listening who may just join us, uh, Amanda might be the only guest who has good reason to say, no, I will not come back because uh, Amanda joined us last season on an episode that is a fan favorite uh, about Mr. Smith goes to Washington. The classic film, Jimmy Stewart uh, goes to the Capitol. And that episode was recorded back in, I think, October. Yeah, October uh, or November. Yeah, October or November. I don't even think the election had happened yet. It was before the election because we were yeah. talking in hypotheticals. Yeah, so it was before the election of Joe Biden. Uh, we recorded it. It was set to be released on January 7th um, of 2020. And a oh, really weird thing. My yeah, 20, a really 7th, weird thing happened in my backyard the day before that so yeah uh, <laughs> and it was it was one of those things where you know there we are and like we've all got our news channels on and it's just a bunch of it starts with a bunch of crowds yelling outside the Capitol and us going huh this is poorly timed to our you know our episode might be a little poorly timed and and then they made their way in and things started breaking and there was just a large group chat of all of us just going oh my god let's we can't Let's push this. Be- Holy shit. The okay, worst so possible. I, I yeah. think I think Donald Trump is going to reannounce his uh, run for president in front of an Arby's <sighs> and he's going to have a gu- an electric guitar with a chainsaw attachment and he's going to start sacrificing public school teachers in front of Arby's and saying, we're taking America back from the smart and the elite. We are the best. Nobody's been better than us. I have the best chainsaw guitar. It's the best chainsaw guitar we've ever seen. <laughs> I and Tom, I'm putting Tom, a dollar on that bet. A dollar, I, because I, it's definitely got a high uh, ratio. It's definitely got a high, you know, uh, odds ratio to it. But it's 2022. The last two years, I don't know. I mean, if Tom, if every single detail of that happens, I'll buy you a new pair of Air Jordans. I thank you. I, just, I need but it has to be every single thing. Every, every single, single thing. thing. <laughs> See, I'm thinking he's going to get us a public school teacher from every state that didn't vote for him in 2020, and he's just going to start filleting them while he pretends he's playing uh, Stranglehold by Ted Nugent, but it's clearly playing through speakers. And then Ted Nugent is just getting married to another child bride off to the side. I don't want anyone to be sacrificed or child brides to be married, so I would rather buy myself a pair of Jordans, so just to be clear... This is well. If oh, if it's going to be anything like if I feel okay, so it might have to be like something related. This is it's going to have to be something related to the movie we're watching since we watched the movie about the Capitol and then a cat the Capitol was, was attacked. That was the true. Oh my god. So okay, so a primary. No, no. Okay, Anna... so we're gonna have primaries coming up soon, ish. I, I I don't know. I mean, uh, so what crazy things gonna happen in the next primary season? Hmm. Wait, Hubert hang on. Humphrey's ghost comes back, but he's muncher. <laughs> And he starts oh, no. firing. He starts firing bullets 
at no. all of the descendants of the people that didn't vote for him. Okay. Oh no! Right, no, 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 no! All right, no, all right, no, hang, no, on, no, hang on, no. hang on, hang on. We've gone pause, way time around out. the bend. Time out. Time out. Okay, we need to take a break from this because instead we have a very important thing to do, which is we have listeners, we have fans, we are putting out the fan <laughs> yes, art call. I'm so sorry. Please, we are putting out the fan art call. Please send us fan art of, of, Hugh, of former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, but as Muncher from the movie Ghostbusters Afterlife. And he's getting into a fist fight with the ghost of Harold Ramis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Now, is mentioning the ghost of Harold Ramis tasteless? Yes. Would it be more tasteless oh. if we put it at the end of our movie Ghostbusters Afterlife? You bet, folks. All no, right. you know what's even more tasteless is that his whole thing was, oh, we wrote this script without a studio. We did it ourselves. And I'm like, it's worse that a studio didn't make you do these things. <laughs> you decided to do Harold Ramis' ghost on your own, you sick little freak. No. <laughs> All right, enough of this. I've been ranting right. long enough. Um, this is on, on a more serious note, um, when, when we were in that group chat having that discussion uh, as things were unfolding on January 6th, which was like a super scary time to be in the, the D.C. Virginia area, um, I was really proud and, and really happy with the statement that you guys put together and the way that we all decided to pivot and handle it. And it's why I call you guys my podcast fam. Aww. That and because I don't have another podcast fam, like, you know, yeah, you we'll, guys we'll are the only it. ones that will we'll have be, me. Thus far. We'll take it anyway. Yeah, yeah we'll take it. Pri- primary yeah. afterlife. Uh, okay. God damn it. <laughs> oh, um, no. Look! Oh my god, in the jacket, I found the very cigarette JFK smoked in the hotel room. He held on to it for 40 years. As um, Hubert Humphrey and Harold Ramis are fighting, you just see JFK just tr- just like hanging out at a Hooters on the corner nearby. Okay. Just, just whistling to himself, we, we've got high hopes for Harold Ramis to win this fight so, and for me to take home one of these ladies. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about the show that everybody, I think, needs to know is that if you've listened to last season and this season, the energy that the interactions between Amanda and Tom bring out in both of them, but especially Tom, you would think that these people know each other very well and go back a while is not true. Not Just true inexplicably, you put the two together and I don't have control over the show. <laughs> well, it's also like I got to bring this chaotic energy to movies about politics because I'm like, well... I'm into politics and all, but I'm not at close to the same level of intellect and insight as Mike and Amanda, especially. But also, politics these days, as I've been joking, not really, though, is insane. Well, So I, I mean, kind of feel like we got to make things a little light since it feels like if we talk seriously about, you know, politics then and how they reflect now, it'll make us want to shove our face into a hot hot plate, you know. It's... it's- well, part of it, too, we should know, you know, and we'll talk about this a little bit, but, you know. We did predict the Capitol riots, so we, it's we, like we, we have to have some fun. <laughs> uh, but, you know, the thing is, like, uh, Amanda is obviously still working in, you know, in, in politics. Uh, you know, I've had some experience. Uh, Tom, you're kind of like that guy who, um, you know, you, you don't gamble much. You only do it in the office pool. And that's because when that pool comes around every year, everybody sees the glint in your eye where it's like, if this guy goes down that path, he's going to be a gambling addict. Like, you and I have worked on some political things. We did some campaign stuff a little bit, and it was one of those things where it's like, right, if you got started down that path, you would be all in, and you would not sleep, and you would be fueled by pure, like, 
I don't know, rage and Oh god, I can't imagine Tom on a political campaign. I would be Kevin Dunn in Veep. I can (laughs) no, I I can, but I just feel like by the time you got to get out the vote, what would the campaign have done to him? Like would he be turned up to a thousand? I I mean, listen, if Tom if Tom had started on the same campaign as us in twenty sixteen, I'm convinced that by now he would a be a senior advisor to someone in DC and b be on That's his fair. sixth heart attack. Just <laughs> he doesn't even. It's it's like it would be like like Farley in the DeBear sketch where it just he has it and it passes in five seconds because he's just like I this happens all the time. Don't worry about it. It stopped for a second. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm I'm trying to get to my second heart attack on each ventricle in my heart. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! So I'm I'm like I'm like oh man, we got to get that top right one soon. Top right one. <laughs> We're running into the primary season. I got to get one more in to get some sympathy for everybody. <laughs> it's yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so we are here once. Um, but we put out the Mister Smith goes to Washington episode last season, and a lot of uh, our listeners really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, in our end of season survey, a lot of people responded positively to it. And I had and told Amanda you should come back next season, but next season we're going to do something a little different because I knew that we had uh, primary on the list. And so we're going from a fictional account of Washington, D.C. to a, a true-to-life and, in fact, very uh, true, considering the way the film was made, uh, depiction of an actual campaign primary. Uh, this one, of course, the Wisconsin primary uh, between... Uh, John F. Kennedy and Hubert Humphrey. So there's a lot to talk about this, with this film because there's the actual history element of it, and there's also the filmmaking element of it, uh, and all of the reasons why it would be in the registry, both for its importance as a document of an event and its importance as uh, a piece in the evolution of filmmaking. So we have a lot to cover, but before we do any of that, let's take a look at what the registry had to say about primary. Produced by Robert Drew, shot by Richard Leacock and Albert Mazels, and edited by D.A. Pennebaker, Primary charted new territory in documentary filmmaking. Using lighter, more mobile cameras and sound equipment, the filmmakers achieved greater intimacy with their subjects, following on their heels as candidates wound through packed crowds and hovering like gnats to capture their more private moments. Modern political and news reporting owes much to the audacity of this film's invasive technique. So that's what the registry had to say. Uh, Amanda, was this your first time seeing Primary? It was my first time seeing Primary. Did you did you walk out of it just completely electrified by the rock star charisma of Hubert Humphrey? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to get into that because I do think that's an interesting thing. But but Tom, now you had seen this, um, I think, for the first time a couple months ago, right? Well, yeah, like, uh, like Jesus Christ, I already forgot the last episode we recorded. That's um, fine. It might come out later anyway, so just... Right, well, well, over the summer, I was trying to, because it seems like we were gearing up again, so I was trying to watch some stuff before we got to him so I could see him twice. Took a lot longer to get to the new season than I thought, so yeah, I saw it over the summer. I watched it again a few, yesterday, actually, and um, yeah, so I've seen it twice now. It's, uh, it's one I saw for the first time, I think, a couple of years ago, and only because... I think the most interesting thing about the registry when you look at it is that, you know, and I've brought this up before, the first year is ostensibly all canonical films, right? You go up to anybody on the Mm -hmm. street and you say a title, and most likely they've heard it, right? Maybe not everybody's seen Gone with the Wind, but they've heard it. You know, 
uh, even Grapes of Wrath or something like that. You know, they, they've heard of it. And there's only one documentary in the first year, which is Nanook of the North, which is ostensibly the first documentary in a lot of senses. I remember looking at this year, uh, the second year, and there are a couple titles that stick out and you go, I don't, what's that? And primary remember sticking out to me as very odd because it is a, you know, you look it up, it's not something that gets talked about a lot um, comparatively. At the, I think at the time that I first looked at the list, the Criterion set hadn't come out yet. And I just I was struck by it because from the description, not the registry's description, but like a description you find, it just sounds like, yeah, you filmed a primary. I don't get what the big deal is. And I, I think that what really struck me, and I don't know about you guys, but uh, I didn't know anything about its significance going in. Again, it hadn't gotten the Criterion set yet that it's now in. Um, For anybody, you know, there's, a, there's a great Criterion set that I think we're all working off of now, <laughs> um, which put together all of the Robert Drew Kennedy films. Uh, Primary, Adventures in the New Frontier, Crisis, and Faces of November. But I, I think for me, and I don't know about you guys, like, watching it the first time, I kind of... Because it starts very stagnant. It starts like a standard documentary does, in a way, where it's showing this guy on his porch just talking about, well, here's what I think about taxes and all that. And <laughs> Hubert Humphrey walks out. Uh, talks to him for a bit. We see the Humphrey campaign bus. Uh, we listen to his theme song. And then the thing that strikes you is you get that shot of Kennedy walking through the crowd of people. And it's this wide-angle lens tracking him from behind. And it it looks like nothing you had seen in the language of news footage prior to that. And I feel like that was the moment where, in my head, it clicked and I went, I I get it. I got that this was about more than just the Wisconsin primary. It was that that particular image, you know? Yeah, I I, I do know. I think uh, w- that was a really interesting way to open it because it was such a stark comparison between the the two campaigns and how they were being received and, and being run and, and a real inside look at the both of them. Yeah, it was it drew me in. Um, a little bit and and considering and I'm not a documentary buff by any means at all so I don't know what documentaries look like before this one really came out but um, I was I did not know what to expect coming into this one and I I really enjoyed it Um, it was a solid hour and then it was a solid hour that I spent watching it with the commentary on that beautiful DVD set you guys sent me. Uh, and then another half hour watching the, uh, the second cut that was also available. <laughs> That's true. We did, we did send you um, uh, on behalf of the show. We sent you this, the Robert drew criterion set. And I want to make it clear to everybody that's because you are a friend of ours. That was an exception. Not everyone who comes on the show gets mailed a Criterion. I want to make that clear. That is not. Oh yeah. Nobody else should come on with those expectations. Please don't. No. I'm. I won't feel special anymore. <laughs> I was. I was very sad. It was. It's a result of uh, being a friend of the show and having clinical depression uh, in the middle of a pandemic that I was uh, then sent uh, that as a as a lovely token and a reminder of of our friendship. <laughs> Yeah, Mike. Mike can't handle that uh, a, that a, a hit to his budget because 
I'm I'm not doing it. Let's be honest here. Mike <laughs> Mike handles all the extra stuff. I come I watch movies. I come here and talk, and then I forget I even did it. The ten minutes after we're done recording, <laughs> so um, Mike um, can't afford it. Don't assume it. Leave him yep. alone. Um, and I don't want to not feel special anymore. So we'd be rivals, and we'd have to have some kind of a turf war. Please don't do it. Unless, the only thing I know about turf wars is from like Greece and West Side Story. Please don't make me do it. Unless other people want to start sending Amanda criterions, in which case I say, oh yeah, yeah. Next Barnes and Noble sale, just start sending over like I don't know some of the John Waters movies or something. Like just pick random stuff and mail it out. You know, yeah. Hey Amanda, here's Streetwise. <laughs> please send me fan mail. Um, <laughs> please send me fan mail. It could be anything. It could be trash. Amanda, just you want to watch me. Insignificance? <laughs> I just want to feel appreciated, Tom. <laughs> I just want to know well, people good, are thinking about me. We're going we're gonna to launch a Patreon. Breaking news, we're launching a Patreon <laughs> that's all about sending Amanda criterions. <laughs> no, we're not doing that. Leave us alone. Please, God, leave us alone. I, um, I love that not ten minutes after you said, I don't do anything, you also took charge and announced we were launching a Patreon. <laughs> and well, then canceled it. The difference between saying, yeah. we're launching it, and then me actually doing it. I'm going to announce it, and then I'm going to say, all right, Mike, Kyle, you handle this. I've got to watch Jason kill some more people today. So, <laughs> all right, so I do want to address some things off the bat, because, the, again, this in, this movie does have a lot of interesting balance between uh, history and, and politics. One thing that I think is really engaging about this, because, Amanda, you said you're not you know big on, on documentary history. We only had one documentary last season. This season, we actually get to cover three. One of which so, is a short. It is, yes. I mean, this one's also kind of a short, too, but, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it's basically an episode of 60 Minutes. It's yeah. a TV special. But like we talked about on The Nook, it's like documentaries, they existed, but they kind of didn't really start taking form until kind of essentially at this point, because this is where you get D.A. Panabaker and one of the Maisel's brothers oh, this is... working on this. And this is like ground zero for like the work these guys are going to end up doing that would then lead to Errol Morris pretty much formulating what documentaries look like today. So that's what we're going to get into because the the booklet that comes with the Criterion set, uh, I think, it, you know, this comparison gets done a lot, but I really think it's fairly accurate that this movie represents kind of the Beatles of documentary. Insofar Pretty as you've much, got yeah. Robert Drew, you've got Richard Leacock, you've got um, then D.A. Pennebaker and, and Albert Maisels. Documentaries before this, Robert Drew said that his problem with documentary was that he felt like they were, that documentaries weren't films uh, from, because think about the 50s, right? When Robert Drew is, is really watching these things. The big documentaries of the time are on TV. You've got Edward R. Murrow's See It Now. And in the cinemas, I mean, the movies that are winning Oscars are largely like the Walt Disney True Life Adventures. And in both cases, they're footage that is accompanied by a lot of voiceover. You know, a lot of, and this is how the birds fly. Look at them. They're flying. This is how Hubert Humphrey drinks coffee. (laughs) So... (laughs) Tom is having so much fun with just the name Hubert Humphrey. At this point. He's a fucking King of the Hill character. Come on. <laughs> um, so Drew's comment was he felt that documentaries were, quote, lectures with picture illustrations. Now, what's interesting about that is that 
Nanook of the North, the film that we covered in season one, which is the original documentary in a lot of senses, was originally a lecture accompanied by a video, and the medium hadn't really evolved. Um, what Drew had felt was that um, that the issue was, he initially had a comment in one of the interviews I'm watching where he says, uh, you know, uh, I had a feeling uh, that filmmakers were just plumbers and anyone with a brain could do it better. And then I learned a few things. One, I was right. Most filmmakers are plumbers, but the technology didn't exist to do it better. He, uh, Robert Drew was like, uh, an, you know, he was a World War II pilot, and then he became a photographer for Life magazine, and mm-hmm. he loved that photographs could be candid. Photographs could capture something honestly. And film, because cameras were so cumbersome, and audio recording equipment was so cumbersome, he, it, it it was impossible to do that. Um, and one of the things that is lamented, and Amanda, I know you said you listened to the commentary too. They talk about this. Uh, I should note, the commentary isn't actually a commentary. It's a it's a it's like a radio interview that mm-hmm. they put underneath primary. And I highly recommend everybody seek it out. Tom, I truly think you will get a kick out of this because it's Drew and I think Maisel and Leacock and the interviewer. And they just, or it's it's Drew and it's it's somebody. It's kind of hard to tell who's talking. It's it's Leacock and Pennebaker, isn't it? Leacock and Pennebaker. You're right. You're right. It's not Drew. No, Drew is there. Sorry, Drew is there. It's Drew, Leacock, and Pennebaker. They start arguing a lot. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend. (laughs) They just. I mean, it it sounds like episodes where this show goes off the rails, where like one person says something and the other immediately goes, "Well, I don't think that's true. That's wrong." No, that's not, yeah, that's not how that is. Well, if you just let me finish my point. No, well, I'm just saying that that's right. It's, it's fun. But, well, no, I'm just saying you're a fucking moron. Yeah. And you should have never been involved in this movie, you dumb piece of shit. Which is kind oh, of how, I disagree. Which, which is kind of why they fell apart, but that's a different story. Um, <laughs> yes, so they felt like the equipment didn't, uh, you know, the equipment wasn't there. Uh, they lament in the commentary um, about how in the silent days, cameras were lighter and you could you could do a lot more, you could do a lot of angles and stuff. But once you have to bring sync sound into it, you lose all of that, right? Yeah. It's why, you know, Nanook of the North was, you know, so much earlier than this fucking movie. But this guy was able to, even though it was a rough goddamn shoot, was able to capture all that kind of stuff in such harsh environments. It's, you know. And even then, I mean, what what he was doing, and not that there were any rules for anything, is he was setting up shots, right? Yeah. He was putting the camera on a tripod and saying, now you show me how you would skin a seal, right? Show me how you would train the dogs. Drew didn't want to do that. You know, his whole rule was we're going to, we're, we're not going to direct anyone to do anything. I don't want there to be directors. Did either of you guys come across how he actually was able to make that shift happen? How he was actually able to do what they did? Uh, I did not. Enlighten us. <laughs> he was working for uh, Time Magazine, I think, or Life. No, Time? One of the two. Uh, <laughs> and he convinced Time Life to give him, because they, they were doing a magazine spread on weightless men, right? Like men in space, you know, floating around. He convinced them to just dump a ton of money into inventing a new kind of camera a new kind of sync sound camera that was lighter weight film the weightless men because his argument was well we'll put the weightless men footage they'll play it on the ed sullivan show and he'll hold up the magazine to promote it and that'll sell more magazines 
But in actuality, Drew just wanted cameras that you could use handheld with sync sound so that he could capture this honest kind of uh, documentary. He didn't like the term cinema verite, which for anyone, cinema verite is, is this, this French concept, I think that kind of is a, a variation on the, the Soviet concept of Kino Pravda, which is film truth. That it's not being manipulated or edited or anything like that. That it's that it's you know it's capturing reality. And um, neither Leacock nor Drew liked that. Uh, there's a quote from the two of them where Leacock says, "I don't want to use the word truth. You can still lie using this technique. It's just harder to lie with this technique." And Drew's argument is, he says, "You know, the French called it cinema verite. That's their word. Is it true? It's truer than any film that came before." And um, Amanda, you can speak to this too because you listen to the, the the commentary. But the the trio that are on there get into a pretty heated argument about whether or not the films are objective truth and how much of their personality is in the work. You know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so they they invent these new kind of cameras, and then first subject that he wants to go out and film because uh, Drew ends up connecting with Richard Leacock. Uh, Richard Leacock ties into this in a very interesting way because Richard Leacock when he was 14 years old, uh, made his first documentary. He was raised in the Canary Islands. He made his first documentary short about banana farming. And then he showed it to his friend's father to ask him what he thought of it. Who here wants to guess who Richard Leacock's friend's father was? I'm so bad at guessing. Walt Disney. That's right. Robert Flaherty, director of The Nook of the North and inventor of the documentary. Well, look at that. Right? What a small world. So Leacock continues to do that, gets uh, a documentary on TV called Toby and the Tall Corn, which is a very intimate documentary. Drew finds him, hits him up, says, I've got this new technology. We can follow people around. And uh, apparently reaches out to the Kennedy campaign because he thought that's an interesting subject. Kennedy is this young guy who has very little chance of winning this election. Because uh, he's too Eastern, he's too Catholic, he's too young, he's too rich. Reaches out to Kennedy and says, we want to film everything. Uh, we want to film you on the trail. We're going to follow you around. Kennedy apparently took a lot of convincing because he wasn't initially comfortable at, at times with Drew's pitch of, we're not going to interview you. We're not going to direct anything. There's no voiceover. Then apparently they went to the Humphrey campaign and went, we want to film you. And Humphrey went, sure. Okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever you want. Uh which, uh, which I mean, well, if you watch the documentary, I think tracks with uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. the two versions of the campaign that you're going to see. But, you know, it's, and it's funny, it's funny, too, though, because, I mean, Kennedy really did end up taking to those guys after seeing oh, this yeah. together, which is why we have those other shorts or other docs on the uh, on this Criterion set, because he was like, yeah, no, these guys are great. I love it. Let's do more of this. Yeah, he's he's quoted once, I think, telling, I think, Ben Brantley or somebody where he says, uh, you know, uh, if we didn't have to deal, who was a journalist, he said, if we didn't have to deal with you bastards, we could actually reach the public. Which is like, you know, <laughs> Drew's whole thing is he hated voiceover. He hated that. Now, do I think that, I think that Drew's resistance to voiceover or any kind of um, context, providing like context and narration, I think both makes primary a better film and also hurts it for contemporary audiences. Yes. Yeah, Cause there's a little bit of it, but not much. And you don't really get 
like, you know, the historical context of a lot of stuff. You don't really know exactly what's going on, where, uh, you know, you don't get all of that stuff about Kennedy. You don't get um, a lot of stuff about Humphrey's position at this point. And, and you kind of just left going, I guess Kennedy was an underdog at this point. Yeah. Uh, is like, what, why is Humphrey being from a closer state? better for him but it still doesn't work like what's going on here i feel like you don't even need to be a historical like cinema like a, a history of film person to like watch this and be like oh this was probably the first time they'd ever done something like this yeah because it's yeah. so rough and it's so streamlined and straight to the point and more experiential than i guess informative because you have that lack of context it really is kind of just like well, here's what it's like being on a primary. We're going to condense it to 53 minutes so you just get the gist of it. And, you know, because this was made for people at the time. This was made, like, as a yeah. news report. So basically everyone who saw it in 1960 would have been like, oh, yeah, no, we, we get what's going on here. So let's see what, what – like, let's see, like, stuff we'd never actually seen before. And, um, you know, it kind of plays into that – I don't know if I want to say myth or that – legend that nixon only lost this election because the debates were televised and kennedy was more photogenic so it kind of plays into that because he's a little more charismatic than the old school man on the corner politician that humphreys is who's kind of a little more clearly playing the shtick where kennedy feels a little more naturally like oh he's a charming boy (laughs) <laughs> now it's interesting you say that because that is a thing that struck me on this rewatch, and I want to I want to pivot and talk to you about this, uh, Amanda, uh, because it's something that struck me. Um, we've both had experience, and you more so than me, like where uh, we've either uh, where either you have a candidate who, when you watch them speak and you're in the room, uh, you think this person's electrifying and great, and then you see their media coverage and go. Well, that doesn't seem like the person I just saw, or vice versa. I, I'm we're not going to name names, but I, I know we've both met people who <laughs> you have a conversation with them and go, "How the hell did anyone ever vote for this person?" You know, <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't think we're saying anything too much to to just say it that way. But um, yeah, yeah, no, a hundred percent. I have experienced both of those, <laughs> both of those things. Uh, and and several combinations. Uh, there's really all of the variables that you can put into it. Yeah, and um, I don't necessarily know that that is that the that the latter there is where I would categorize. Um, you know, the Humphrey campaign. I think that there was a little bit less of that. You know, big persona charm mm-hmm. um, that Kennedy was bringing to the table um, as it's as it's portrayed in the documentary but there was something you know i i watched i watched the documentary and i found myself sort of wondering if i lived in wisconsin in 1960 who would i be voting for and i wasn't 100 percent sure that's yep i was gonna say the thing that i think is interesting about this is if you try and take yourself out of the pace of the film and the editing of the film kennedy doesn't come off any better than humphrey to me Insofar as if you think about the scenarios where, first off, beautifully, one thing I love about this uh, for the sake of the film is there's never any policy talk. 
No. You do not come away from this knowing any of their positions on anything. Uh, the closest you get is Kennedy making some comments about injustice and um, and Humphrey saying, nobody looks out for the farmer like me. That's it. The only policy talk you hear is at the beginning with that one guy on his porch talking about taxes. But why Kennedy comes off better is that the choice of, the choice of what to show in this film. When we see Humphrey, you know, we see Humphrey and he is on the street. We always see him on the street talking to people one-on-one on the sidewalk or he is standing not on a stage but on the floor of this gymnasium talking to these farmers who are sitting there watching him. Whereas Kennedy, our first look at him, it's that overhead shot in the wide lens of the crowd gathering around him. It's the lines of people lining up to shake his hand. Um, you have the you alternate between Hubert Humphrey's campaign song, which is a reworking of the Disney Davy Crockett song, uh, <laughs> sung by a man on an acoustic guitar, and then you get a chorus of young people singing "High Hopes," which was not only Kennedy's campaign song but was a reworking of the Oscar-winning "High Hopes" originally performed by Frank Sinatra. So there's as much well, as these guys talk about truth and trying to pick things how they are the editing of this film and what it chooses to show is doing a lot of work to depict one person one way and one person another well yeah it's because it's not about policy because like it's it's i mean it's something we saw we see today it's it's that kennedy was different he had a different style to campaigning i mean they show it's almost like watching a rock star with kennedy that's why that like, it feels like they're not mm-hmm. showing policy and anything because it's not important because kennedy didn't win because of policy kennedy won because he was different he was different than the guys we've been getting so far and you know humphreys it's not like humphreys was a train wreck or anything but it's he's it's like i said he's an older style of campaigner you know going on the streets and talking to people like, oh, hey, yeah, we should go get a cup of coffee. And uh, Kennedy's just, you know, trolling through rows of young people signing autographs and like, oh, yeah, great, awesome, yeah, I'm John Kennedy, awesome, yeah, vote for me, cool. <laughs> and it's it's another element of why this movie's important is it showed a changing in how politics were going to be run at, afterwards. I mean... And yet it's going to be about style and the pizzazz and the charisma of the candidate, not so much what they're actually saying. And yet I'll say to that, though, um, one thing that's interesting is I agree with you, Tom. There's it's you're juxtaposing Humphrey on the sidewalk talking to one person about getting coffee versus Kennedy through the throng of people. However, you get a brief glimpse in this movie of now documentaries don't have characters per se, but if they do. Uh, my favorite character in this film, which is a uh, 17-year-old girl absolutely losing her shit over Hubert Humphrey. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you guys remember this girl. It's the girl in Sidewalk yeah. who's just, I love her so much. Uh, how are you going to vote for me? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, no, but I can't vote. But I'm going to help. I'm going to volunteer. Yeah, uh-huh, yeah. I love her <laughs> with every fiber of my being um, because... One thing that's interesting about that is you could have, if you wanted to, 
just through the editing. You know, there's a quote that often gets tossed around that a movie is written three times. It's written on the page. It's written on set. And it's written in the editing room, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You could have through the editing. I'm certain because they followed these guys around everywhere. I'm certain there was footage of Kennedy standing by himself talking to one guy on the sidewalk. And I'm certain there was footage of Humphrey being greeted with enthusiasm by a youth. If you had just pulled that shot out wider, we would have seen the other teenagers that we see the shoulders of gather around Hubert Humphrey. But I think that one thing that's interesting about this is that the idea that Drew posits, and I think, you know, Leacock and Maisel's push back on that, and Panabaker and Maisel's obviously go on to do their own films that get more to the heart of that, which is to capture the footage in the moment is one thing, but you have to find the truth in the edit. And yeah. that that can, I mean, a perfect example, a thing that occurred to me while I was watching this that really struck me um, is that we have a thing right now that is very popular out right now, which owes an insane debt to primary. And I don't know if you guys are thinking what I'm thinking, but uh, get back. The six hour Beatles documentary, Peter Jackson edit together on Disney plus. Have either of you guys watched that yet? I have uh, not no. watched all of it yet. It's, it's very fly on the wall. It, I mean, it is mm-hmm. totally indebted to this in that much like Drew's philosophy Nobody's getting directed. Nobody's getting told what to do. And you just leave the camera alone long enough that people feel comfortable. What's so interesting is this same footage existed in 1970. And they cut it together into Let It Be. A movie Mm -hmm. that when you watch Let It Be, you are convinced that these guys wanted to murder each other (laughs) in that studio. It's a depressing movie. Um, I've seen it once. I know that people who saw it at the time... Um, I mean, truly, like, uh, you know, if I talk to my father about it, he went to see it in the theater and still all these years later, like, talked about it as though as though it was like watching your parents get a divorce in front of you. You know, like, it was really <laughs> it's, uh, and I mean that sincerely, like, it's a really hard watch. And then you see this six and a half hour version and you realize they're all getting along pretty good. There's such fun moments. You get to watch Paul McCartney just make up, get back. Him and Ringo are goofing around on the piano. Nobody oh, yeah. hates Yoko. Like, that's not a thing. <laughs> that's just, there's a whole conversation and I'm going, yeah, I actually quite like Yoko. It's good that they're in love. I think that's great. And I think that what's interesting about that is that this this footage that Peter Jackson puts together feels a little bit in line with what Drew kind of aimed for, which is, let's just show these people how they are. But it's so easy to take that exact same footage, even if it was direct cinema, cinema verite, whatever you want to call it, this you know obs- this this footage in the background this observant non-directed footage and it's so easy to edit that in a way that misrepresents what the truth of the event was you know and i'm i'm curious about that because just like the that one moment with that very excited young girl who couldn't vote but just was so excited to be meeting humphrey there is a very quick shot of JFK on the sidewalk, like offering his hand to people who are passing by. And some folks are just breezing past him. And Mm -hmm. we know that there was a lot of contention around him being, you know, uh, a candidate in the primary because of his Catholicism, um, because he was considered like, you know, what what we now all get slammed as for being like East Coast elite um, Democrats. 
I bet you that there's loads of footage where he wasn't being as well received as he is in the final cut of this documentary. I would be surprised if there wasn't. Um, maybe people were more polite in 1960 about it, but than they are now when we have differences in opinions. Um, but I would be, I would be really interested to sort of see what else was there. Oh yeah, there's, I mean, there was definitely a lot of stuff. You, you... I'm sure those guys were would be very jealous of what Peter Jackson was able to do because they were like, Jesus Christ, we got to crunch this shit down to 53 minutes. Well, they had to crunch it down more, too. Yeah. Because they didn't, nobody wanted to buy it. Yeah. Nobody would air That's the 53 minutes. That's why we got minute. that second cut. Yep. Richard Lee. Did you watch the half hour cut, Tom? Uh, no, I did not. I, Amanda, I know you said you watched it, right? The na- and Yeah. And yeah. it's really interesting to watch it and then go back and talk about what we were talking about before with the narration because it's a little different it opens and closes a little bit differently well it starts um, with kennedy this time which i thought was very interesting yeah and the the way that the the actual voiceover um frames it is a little bit broader um i i my my little feminist ears did pick up when they were like becoming president is the dream of thousands of boys and like half and girls now um but it does also i believe tie it up in a way that sort of explains neither of them are going to leave you know knocked out of the the primary process or with it cinched um it was really interesting to watch that that sort of cut down version and, and see what um you know, he felt was important. One of the things that strikes me too is, I mean, one thing I kept thinking of um, was a, a lot of this reminded me of there's Hunter S. Thompson has his book, uh, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72, which mm-hmm. depicts the Democratic primary in, in 72. Um, now, in this case, we're looking at a primary where you've got the old guard candidate. Uh, in Hubert Humphrey, and you've got the young upstart Kennedy that all the youth are behind. And Kennedy ends up uh, winning the primary through the power of the youth vote and goes on to become elected president and usher in the new frontier, and it all ends great. Uh, And Fear and Loathing in 72 is the same (laughs) story, except it ends disastrously. (laughs) Because 72's primary... Like, I couldn't help but think, and uh, have you read Campaign Trail 72, Amanda? Not in a very long time. Well, if you don't have a copy, a that's the next thing time. we're mailing to you, uh, oh. for sure. Because I know Tom Tom has read it. I know you read it, what? like Yes, I have. Tell me you didn't get, there's a great thing. I mean, and granted, this is Hunter Thompson reporting it. And if we're going to talk about anybody, uh, I don't know, uh, altering truth in the edit, I feel like Hunter Thompson <laughs> is the embodiment of it. Um, no. Yeah. Why, why would you say that? <laughs> well, he had, what does he have? I forget which candidate it was. I think it was Ed Muskie, but he has that line years later on Letterman. Uh, I reported a rumor that Ed Muskie was taking adrenochrome. Uh, I was the one that started the rumor. You know? <laughs> um, but But I couldn't help but think about in 72 in the book, he talks about Ed Muskie uh, traveling around the country on a train that he called the Sunshine Special. And, like, it's very, very old school and very, very, like, hokey. And meanwhile, you've got George McGovern, who's winning the youth vote and all that. Um, and it's just, like, all of these guys look old and out of touch, and McGovern's the one that got the kids behind him. And when they show that first shot of Hubert Humphrey's campaign bus uh, with the poster on the front, and you hear that dinky little 
um, guitar playing the fucking Davy Crockett theme. Uh, I couldn't help but think, like, this is the Sunshine Special. This is just that a decade plus earlier. And we were still trying that 12 years later. Like, there's still just this. I mean, and you don't even have to go back that far. I mean, you know, let's face it. None of us uh, were alive for the, the Kennedy primary, but I think all of us remember, I mean, most of our initiations to politics in any serious way, um, I assume, was in 2008, right? I think we were mm-hmm. all, you know, coming of age at that time. We were heading out to vote. And we, I think we all remember the weirdness of, the odd fascination of basically everybody going, okay, the race basically boils down to Hillary Clinton and John Edwards. And also that guy who spoke at the 2004 convention from Chicago, he's also running, right? <laughs> and I just remember, like, I do think of that as that, that is about as close as I think we could get to this Kennedy moment of he was so counted out, you know, Barack Obama was so counted out in 2008, you know, just had the young people behind him. It was like the, the next wave of the Howard Dean movement. And we remember how Howard Dean went. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so do you remember Howard Dean, Tom? Oh yeah. I feel like he's, <laughs> I feel like he's joining the Hubert Humphrey ranks for you in terms of just fascinating figures of a time. Uh, time will tell. We'll see. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> Tom, Tom, I Tom's political memory is all viewed like uh, like Sam Neill at the end of In the Mouth of Madness. It's just an <laughs> odd clip show of campaigns flaming out as he cackles, staring at the screen. Um, <laughs> not wrong. <laughs> but I I think that that to that degree that the Maisel, I mean that the Maisels, but the Drew and Pennebaker and all them were able to kind of in the moment capture something that felt on that 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 vibes with how we view things retrospectively right that even though kennedy was a long shot he manages to look like he's gonna win even though that wasn't necessarily true at that point yeah it's very strange to watch it in in hindsight however many years later oh god math uh, 60 years later um, and and because we know the outcome we know obviously who becomes president it's very strange to watch it and put yourself in the frame of he was an underdog at this point like there were a lot of people who did not seem ready for JFK to be president because of his differentness um, and to watch it uh, with that mind, because you, when you compare the two campaigns that are happening, it it doesn't, to me, look that way. Um, there were a lot of parts of it that actually sparked things that are more from like fictional political shows and and films and dramas that I watched, and I was like, well, it it does look like they're presenting Kennedy as this phenomenal figure to the point where it was almost, it almost felt like. Uh, you know, the political equivalent of Beatlemania, watching all of yeah. the young people sort of scramble for um, his his autograph, whereas if um, when you're watching the Humphrey scenes, I kept thinking of um, 
in the later seasons of the West Wing, I think it's season six when Jimmy Smith's character is such an underdog in the in the primaries, and he's just like outside of the Lynchfield dump trying to get people to shake his hand. Like you've got Hubert Humphrey handing out his his business cards on the on the streets in Wisconsin, um, and I was just like, who are who is the underdog in this situation? Um, and when you when you think about what the actual climate was and the demographics that they were trying to appeal to in Wisconsin at the time, listening to him talk to those farmers. Um, and, you know, granted, we see it all the time now, even when the when the votes start coming in, they come in from the, the urban areas later in the in the in the night. Um, and that's when some of the more progressive uh, candidates will start sort of making their sweep. And that's exactly what what happens. Um, but it's really interesting to watch it in hindsight and for to, to sort of reprogram my brain for one hour saying, oh, like people did not expect JFK to win. I know he wins. Um, but it was it was actually really fascinating to watch it that way, because I think it really, um, you know, in, in comparison to the way that we look at politics and politicians in real life and how they're being portrayed now, um, you know, watching it now, you wouldn't go into it with and, and think. And I think that that's where the lack of voiceover to, to set that context, um, granted it was made for the time, um, would have been useful for me watching it because I, I kept forgetting that as I was watching it. I kept forgetting, ah, like this is not just about the ascension of JFK. This was made at a time where we weren't sure what was going to happen. I also think, you know, you had never had this kind of access to a candidate before because you just couldn't bring the cameras around. The technology didn't exist. But another thing that strikes me is you would probably never get this access to a candidate again because now... Now the campaign team would be looking at that overhead wide angle shot of Kennedy walking through the crowd that we love so much and saying, no, that's a weird looking angle. It makes his head look weird. No, don't have that. Can we just make sure he's talking to this woman? Do we know who this woman is? Can we do a background check? Like it's so heavily controlled now. And to think Mm -hmm. that at the time it is insane. I mean, they talk about it in there's a documentary about Robert Drew on the Criterion Disc. And they talk about they were so at ease and Kennedy especially was so at ease with Drew that after he became president and Drew came to the White House with a camera, he's in a meeting with generals talking about the Cuba situation before we had invaded Cuba. And Drew is there rolling the camera. And it wasn't until like midway through the conversation that a general like points to Kennedy and points to Drew and just goes like as though to say, this is insane. What are you doing? No, I was saying, yeah, no, it's it's hard to even think of anything uh, that comes close to this run they had with Kennedy because of all that you were saying. Like, they would not allow this stuff to happen again. They kind of had to start getting media literate. I guess the closest would be the war room, where you have, like, some of those moments where they're talking about, like, oh, so there's this girl coming up talking about what she did with Clinton, and you go, oh, that's... Interesting that they let this out. But that's the key mm-hmm. thing about the war room, and we'll uh, you know, I, 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 let's just say I have a feeling that's coming up later, uh, later in the show. Uh, hint, hint. But um, the interesting thing about the war room is they don't show Clinton all that much. It's about his, his staffers. Yeah. Now with this, it's the other thing that I find interesting is is that access, uh, that idea of access fades because Kennedy was thoroughly invested in this idea of filming everything because he felt like 
the American public could get a better read on the people in power if they could see their faces, they could hear their voices. So he was big on let's bring the cameras in. Uh, a film we're going to cover later in the, in the show, several seasons from now, Crisis, is another film by the Drews, is actually you know in the room for when Kennedy is dealing with George Wallace um, fighting school desegregation, right? Um, and it's a fascinating thing to see. But the interesting thing is, so Kennedy uh, is, is killed, and Johnson, while not allowing cameras around him all the time, does, for the sake of posterity, decide to implement a recording system in the Oval Office uh, to record everything for preservation for the American people. And then the guy who comes after Johnson has the recording system in the Oval Office for posterity and access. And then we don't do that anymore. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, That's kind of the interesting thing, Uh, you know, and and to that note, you know, it's, it's worth noting watching this. I think the more you know about American history, this becomes an even more fascinating document. I think they couldn't have known. I mean, they didn't even know that Kennedy was going to win. But mm-hmm. to realize that, you know, I think if you watch this and you don't know anything other than Kennedy became president, you just kind of go, here's JFK. Here is the underwhelming guy he's running against. But to watch it now, and there's one moment where Bobby Kennedy shows up. <laughs> and he I takes to the moment. podium. I, it's so great. Uh, it's, it's truly like his timing is so good. Because he comes out and just says like, "Well, I'm sorry that my, uh, you know, that my mother couldn't be here, and or, or and Teddy couldn't be here," and then he just keeps listing family members. <laughs> and what I love about it is, just from a comedy standpoint, like when they should have gotten the joke, they don't get it. But he doesn't back off. He just commits to the bit and knows that they're gonna get it eventually. And then the crowd laughs. So Bobby Kennedy's here. And you see Bobby, and to me, uh, you know, and maybe it's just me being a little history dork, like, I have kind of always looked at Bobby Kennedy as like, that feels like the real star, you know? And it's so interesting to think that, essentially, uh, you know, Kennedy's obviously killed, uh, LBJ takes over, and Bobby Kennedy is the one who decides to primary LBJ, right? Mm-hmm. He decides to primary LBJ. LBJ drops out. Bobby Kennedy is seen as kind of the clear favorite for the nomination. The youth is really behind him in 68. Um, and then he's killed. Um, uh, he, he's, he's killed as well. And, of course, you know, who remembers? Ultimately in 68, who gets the nomination in lieu of RFK? Oh, no. I wasn't a history major. I was an English major. Oh, come on. Have we all forgotten the trial of Chicago 7 already, everybody? Oscar-nominated film? Uh, That's right. Hubert Humphrey. Aww. Humphrey gets the nomination. Oh, Uh, try it again. Sorry. (laughs) I don't know why my reaction to Hubert Humphrey was just a great thing. Oh, like a toddler taking its first steps. We really have just made him muncher at this point. Um, (laughs) So... So, yes, so when Johnson announced he would not seek re-election, Humphrey, who had been Johnson's vice president, launched his own campaign for the presidency. Uh, He got a lot of pushback. I mean, it was really, imagine the conflict between him and JFK times two insofar as Humphrey had really doubled down on Vietnam, 
He was loyal to Johnson, mm. so he supported Vietnam. Weirdly, at this time, we did not have binded delegates the way that we do now, right? Uh, in primaries, uh, you could win the primaries and still not get the nomination at the convention. There's a lot of wheeling and dealing that was going on at the time. That was the case yeah. in 68. Uh, Humphrey basically decided to avoid primaries and try and win delegates from non-primary states at the convention. It worked. He got the nomination, showed Ed, chose Ed Muskie as his running mate. But very famously, uh, the youth opposition to that nomination was very strong. Uh, mm. There were, uh, you know, it was, uh, and then the police cracked down on those protests in a uh, very overkill manner. Uh, anyway, that's the trial of the Chicago 7. Sasha Baron Cohen got an Oscar nomination. But the key thing to remember is that there was a lot of opposition to Humphrey because while he was the Democratic candidate, he was not uh, the most progressive or liberal-minded Democrat. So his nomination was opposed, and that is why we ushered in Richard Milhouse Nixon, one of the most progressive and uncorrupt presidents in history. <laughs> It Thank worked God. out great. It's Thank always God. a good call. Uh, message was heard loud and clear. Uh, you sent a message to the establishment, and they said, how about two terms of Nixon? What if we find out he committed a scandal and we still reelect him? Oh, uh, yeah. What an insane... Just... But so, watching it now and like knowing that, like it's just kind of strange to look at it and know that not only are you seeing, okay, John F. Kennedy's about to become president, but your key players in here, Humphrey, Kennedy, and RFK, you're like, this is setting up. These three guys are the cause of everything that happens pretty much going forward, right? Yeah. Because, you know, if, if RFK is not killed or Humphrey is not the nominee, uh, maybe Nixon doesn't get elected. If Nixon's not elected, maybe the, the neocon movement comes sooner. Maybe it never happens at all. You know, and every every domino that falls after that, it is all like looking at this moment and these people bouncing around and you're like, this is it. This is the fulcrum point on which the second half of the 20th century pivots. And it's interesting because it, there there is underlying tone of Nixon in the background of this documentary. You catch it a little bit in the back and forth conversations, especially as they're waiting for those results to come in because Wisconsin has an, uh, a primary system where you don't have to be registered mm -hmm. uh, to that party. You go and you ask for the ballot, you vote. Um, and so they were getting the result counts on Nixon. Um, and every time he was, you know, uh, he he was being projected dead last in those in those exits and those tallies. Um, it 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 was almost a joke. Uh, yeah. it, at least in the Kennedy hotel room that night. Um, which is maybe my favorite part of the documentary because I get to hear Jackie O say shit and yeah. JFK say fuck. I was like, oh, that's something I wasn't expecting tonight. Um, but no, there's like an undercurrent of there where he's not really a threat. Um, he's not really a uh, a concern. It's it's really more what they're focusing on for the Democratic primary, uh, which is natural at that stage in an election, I'm sure. But I don't think that they were taking him um, seriously. Maybe people weren't taking him super seriously. Um, uh, I think a big amount Shit, of the Republican Eisenhower vote. wasn't taking him seriously. Yeah. You know? um, and so... 
uh, it was, it, it's interesting, you know, all of this in hindsight, you know, all of these years later is very interesting um, to watch. It, it's, it's, it's kind of magic what they created there and what you feel as the audience watching it now, looking back on it, being like, oh, I don't know that I would laugh about that right now. <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the hotel room because one thing I think is interesting uh, and it's not in opposition to like Tom, what you were saying about Kennedy being more electric than, than uh, Humphrey. But, but I do think in, in a companion to that, the one thing I will say is every time you see Hubert Humphrey in this movie, it's the same man, right? Whether it's yeah. him in the hotel room waiting for the results, him in the car talking, him talking to the farmers, him talking to the man on the porch. That's Hubert Humphrey every time in every shot. The John F. Kennedy that we see in the hotel room smoking his cigarette and waiting for the results with his head hanging low is not at all the same man we see robotically sort of shaking hands with the line of people early in the film. Mm-hmm. And I find that so compelling that in a like, even though watching the film the first time you do come away going, wow, JFK's electric and Hubert Humphrey's a drag. Watching it a couple more times, you do kind of, it is easy to walk away and get the feeling of Humphrey's authentic and Kennedy is part of a machine. And I don't even mean that in a criticism of John F. Kennedy himself, but rather like the thing that we would come to know later, especially with the, the actions of his father and the administration around him of like, right, this was a guy who the world that that he had a lot of ambition and a lot of ideas, but also that the world around him maybe viewed him as a bit of a useful instrument more so mm-hmm. than a Humphrey who was kind of just another guy in command, you know? Yeah. yeah. There's a great moment where he, he perks up because somebody walks into yes. the room and he's, he's on again in a second. And it, 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 it made me laugh because it, it tracks very well with, um, and, and like I said, while I was watching this, I kept thinking of, you know, various like political dramas and things. It tracks very well with like the depiction of a politician now in media, um, specifically like some of the fictional ones that, that I, I, I love to binge. Um, but it was, it was really interesting to see him like that because he is such, you know, now, when you think about JFK, you just think of him as this this figure, right? You don't think of him as this person that needs to to turn off. Um, and so I don't know that I would say that I didn't think that it was as authentic because it's still, I think it tracks with the, the same level of authenticity that I expect out of a, a, a politician that I like. I, I don't think that I can expect anyone to be on 100% of the time. Um, but I, I do think that it was it was really interesting to see it with him in particular. There's a feeling I think when I it strikes me too the juxtaposition of the hotel rooms. There's Hubert Humphrey and he is on the couch next to his wife, arm around here. They're talking about what TV show to put on, right? And Kennedy, those shots they choose, there's a real loneliness to it, you know. There is a a level of vulnerability in that that I've watched uh, you know a fair number of political documentaries. You don't normally get that 
you know, not that level of vulnerability. The only one I can think of, and interestingly enough, it was about a candidate who didn't win, but um, was, uh, did either of you guys see on Netflix, they made, there was a documentary following Mitt Romney after the 2012 election. It's called Mitt. Uh, no. I, I recommend. I have not. I recommend folks check it out. It's a fascinating thing to watch because I've kind of never seen that. If I've if you see documentaries following a candidate around, it's like primary or like the war room, right? Where uh or uh, what was that one like 2 or 3 years ago? Um knock down the house, bring down the, what the hell was it? Those following oh. all the women candidates. I don't remember. Yeah, the the one with um AOC was in it. Um I don't remember. Well, that's the- yeah, that's that's maybe the fundamental problem of that documentary is I think it meant to follow a bunch of people and then uh, because of events just became AOC and others. But <laughs> in any event, like you only see that about like campaigns that win really. Mitt is a fascinating thing because it is a documentary that is seemingly for seven eighths of its runtime about this Republican family man who is seemingly on the way to becoming the first Mormon president and X, Y, Z and all that. And then in the last <laughs> chunk, it's just gone. And you do see this. It's like, I think cause they were planning on moving and the last shot is just him in an empty house. And it's just so troubling to watch. <laughs> uh, it was especially troubling to watch years later. Cause it is, you know, there, there is that moment. I, I think we maybe get with time where, like, I, I just kind of imagine if somebody in 1968 flashed forward to one of us watching Primary Now, and when we're sitting there and Hubert Humphrey comes on, they're like, yeah, you know, fuck that guy. He was the worst possible option. And I feel like we'd all go, was he? He's kind of just there. <laughs> this is just a, a human potato chip of a man. You were this mad about this guy? You know, and, and Mitt certainly has that energy to it, too, to watch post-2016 where you see this. And you're like, right, we in 2012 we we hated this guy um like just vehemently um it's very weird one thing i do want to talk about too about drew's style and about the, the choice to uh they talk about how when you leave the camera on and you tell somebody you're not going to direct them and you make it clear that you're just there to observe that you can capture these moments of honesty that you wouldn't get any other way I think it's a very startling example of that. And we see this now with modern documentaries. You know, if you get the subject comfortable enough, certainly, um, you know, the the famous story we all know now is the jinx being the one that essentially captures Robert Durst confessing to murder on a microphone. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that kind of happens here in a way, because I think if you had been directing people and directly asking their opinions on things, they would have been playing to the camera but you have this great moment where Humphrey is at a radio station talking to the DJ, right? Or the interviewer or whatever. And the, and the DJ is basically going, yeah, no, you got this. Thank you so much for stopping by Hubert. This is great. You know, this is all well and good. Blah, 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 blah. And then they cut to him after Hubert left and he just goes, hey, he's not winning. No, Kennedy, <laughs> I think Kennedy's winning. He's not winning. And it's such an amazing shift and certainly a lot of time had to pass between those shots for them to get that guy that comfortable. But just to get that juxtaposition of like, oh, yeah, Hubert, yeah, you know, you got this, buddy. You got this. Yeah, no, fuck that guy. Like, it's such a str- a jarring <laughs> thing. You would have never gotten that before. 
Yeah, it was um, that at first I didn't realize that that was where that that statement was going when I was watching it. And I kind of had to bring it back on my DVD player and go, I, I did not expect him to say that after the conversation that he just had um, on air. Um, now, I do want to note uh, a couple things, which is I think we should talk a little bit about about the, the people that made this film. Um, you know, we touched on it a little bit, but of course, Robert Drew is the Robert Drew and and Richard Leacock are the forces behind it. We certainly alluded to, and I have some stuff. That, yeah, we, so we alluded to the fact that the other people involved in this are D. A. Panabaker, Albert Mazels, and also uh, Terrence McCartney Filgit. We should give credit to Terrence McCartney here. Drew, of course, would continue to make his Kennedy films. He also made um, a couple of other films the same year as Primary. He makes a film about stock car racing uh, called uh, On the Pole, Indianapolis 500, which kind of takes, you know, in, in this film, they have those moments shot from the backseat of a car, uh, which are very striking. And in in this, in the Indianapolis one, you're actually watching this race car driver talk about his strategies and his racing from inside his car. It's a, it's a very affecting thing to see. Richard Leacock would go on to... Uh, well, prior to this, he had actually been the cinematographer on Robert Flaherty's last film, Louisiana Story. Uh, he would work with D.A. Panabaker a couple of times. They co-directed a film called Two American Audiences, La Chinois, a film in the making, filming uh, Jean-Luc Godard speaking to American audiences. Albert Mazels and his brother would go off and make hugely influential documentary films, Grey Gardens, Gimme Shelter, Salesman, uh, some of the cinematography on When We Were Kings. D.A. Panabaker would, uh, of course, go on to direct Don't Look Back, Monterey Pop, both of which are in the registry, the aforementioned War Room, Company Original Cast Recording, Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So, uh, you know, the way... Th- and, and Terrence mccartney Filgit, who probably now is best remembered for uh, getting shafted out of an Oscar, because in, in 1962, he was hired to direct uh, and shoot a documentary about Robert Frost after the original director, the great documentarian Shirley Clark, left the project. The film, Robert Frost, A Lover's Quarrel with the World, went on to win the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, but Shirley Clark was credited as the sole director, despite McCartney Filgit actually doing the majority of the directing. He got left off the Oscar. He also got left off the registry statement. Real rough time. Oh, no. Real rough time. But I've been building all this up, Tom, of course, noted uh, how this film is the launching point for all the great documentarians who come along in the 60s and 70s. And, and Tom, you are absolutely right. But let's focus on Robert Drew for one more second. Because, Tom, do you know what Robert Drew's final film was? Oh, boy. No, I do not. Can't wait to find out. He made a film for NASA in 1975, Tom. Okay. It's called Who's Out There? About our relationship with aliens, both the fictional concept and the reality of aliens. Um, Carl Sagan's a talking head in it. They also talk to people who remember hearing the War of the Worlds radio broadcast. But I'm building up to something. Tom, who do you think is the narrator and host of Robert Drew's final film about aliens and particularly the War of the Worlds broadcast? Oh boy, is it Orson? And Tom... Do you think he's entirely coherent as he does it? Oh, no, he's not. As soon as I saw this, I was so happy for you. It's like 25 minutes 
guess I gotta watch that. <laughs> and he starts by just reading from War of the Worlds. <laughs> that was uh, writing by another Wells. Unrelated, of course. H.G. <laughs> Wells. In the War of the Worlds. I, I've i been sitting on... Yes. But it's like Tom Boyan, it is the launching point of documentaries. I just think that it's... Yeah. I wanted to make sure we noted just how much this uh, created. The last thing I want to say, and then if you guys have any more to add before we talk Oscars briefly, I do think it is so interesting. When we talk about how this is edited to tell a story and finding the truth in the editing, even though you're capturing reality, there's something I think really compelling about ostensibly starting the movie, showing the Hubert Humphrey massive campaign bus moving forward, and ending it on a shot of Hubert and his wife getting into this tiny little jalopy and driving away. I think there's something very poetic about that. A little bit. Just a little yeah. bit. Seems like they might be good filmmakers over there. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> uh, oh, and also shout out to the one guy who says there's no difference between Kennedy and Humphrey, reminding us we were always this way. Just, <laughs> there were always those guys. Just always. Did anybody else have anything they want to know before we just quickly wrap up on, on Oscar notes? Uh, not on my end. I think we pretty much covered everything I was, I was feeling about this. No, I think I'm, I think that that's all I really had as, as well. I mean, if you prompted me, I could talk for another hour, but that's because I finished my coffee. Well, we'll be doing more talking in a bit. Don't worry, but on a different topic. (laughs) Um, right. So primary was not nominated for any Oscars. Uh, I think partly because this film was not actually theatrically released. It, I mean, it got a theatrical screening, I think years later in a retrospective. Uh, so it was not nominated for any Oscars. Uh, the documentary feature category that year for which this could have been eligible uh, only had two nominees. Uh, the documentary Rebel in Paradise about the painter Gauguin and the winner, uh, Walt Disney's The Horse with the Flying Tail. Um, I have seen The Horse with the Flying Tail. I can't find Rebel in Paradise. It is seemingly lost to the ages. If anybody has a copy of it, please contact me. But um, Horse with the Flying Tail, I have seen Horse with the Flying Tail, and while I love a lot of those older true life uh, adventure documentaries that Disney made. Uh, I will just say that the horse with the flying tail is seemingly everything Robert drew hated about documentaries. <laughs> so it's interesting that that one, uh, the best picture nominees that year, uh, just for note were the Alamo Elmer Gantry sons and lovers, the sundowners and the winner was the apartment. The only thing of note here related to this film is that, the same year as Primary, in the movie Elmer Gantry, which is a great film, I recommend you check it out, there's a scene where a church council is talking about old-time religion and singles out, this very year, a Catholic is running for president. And that just kind of strikes me as a, a little well, parallel there. you know, this is a Catholic nation, and nobody would ever get mad about a Catholic running for president. Wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> Fucking idiots. Um, yeah, it's always happening. So, Amanda, thank you so much for joining us for this. I, I'm really glad we, get, we could have you back on for this one for a, a very different kind of film than you were on for last time. Uh, thank you so much for coming back again. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed both. Please let me know the next time there is a political film on the registry or have me on for anything because I can, I can six degrees of, of my random bag of expertise anything. Um, and I just love coming on the show and talking to you guys. 
Do you have anything you want to plug? Do you want to plug any social media channels? Anything you want to give a shout out to? Um, you can f- give me a follow on Twitter at Ms. Amanda Rush. Um, that's M-S and my name, Amanda Rush. Um, I didn't want to spell the whole thing. It's long. There's a lot of A's. Um, so you can follow me over there. I am not super active on it lately. I have sort of very much unplugged uh, from Twitter since taking a bit of a hiatus from working in politics um, because it's just, it's a lot of people shouting into the ether. But if you like the show and you want to chat, please feel free to do that instead of trying to send me any Criterion box sets. That's not necessary. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think just just that. I don't really have anything to promote at the moment, um, except for the show. I think everyone should like and subscribe and make sure that you're catching all of the episodes if you're missing out. Amanda, thank you so much for joining us. And everybody else, stick around, because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registration. You've heard Muntries. <laughs> the National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Malton and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of each episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, boys, time for our picks for the registry. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. Okay, so um, I feel like this is probably the easiest one we've had in a while, at least for me. I'm sure Michael picked some random fucking PBS doc that was about some guy running for, you know, local school county president and tallahassee or whatever because he's much deeper in this shit than i am but it's got to be the war room i mean obviously it's the war room we mentioned it in the episode it's kind of like the most obvious um next entry in this kind of thing it's uh different in many ways but also has as the sort of uh access that we don't usually get in these things um and also Gotta get my boy James Carville in the goddamn registry. That that weird Cajun little freak. Gotta get him in. Absolutely gotta get James Carville in. So I, I don't feel like I need to expound too much on it. It's the War Room. It's also on Criterion. Uh, pick it up. It's actually it's um pretty great. I think better than uh, War Room just because uh, better than Primary mainly because it's had the decades of documentary uh, uh, growth. So it's a little more um, in depth, gives you more context and just has a, a, a propulsive drive. You don't see in a lot of documentaries, uh, especially political documentaries and with this kind of access. So the war room. Now it's interesting, Tom, that you picked uh, the war room because that's a DA Panabaker film, right? Yes. One of the, one of the big names that comes out of this uh, film out of primary. Yeah. I love another the war... connection. Yeah. Yeah. I love the the war room as well. I mean, you you know uh, uh, how how big I am on that campaign. Um, but I do think it's interesting. I am going to go with one of the other descendants of uh, primary, which is to focus on the Mazels. Because one thing I think is interesting about primary 
is that it's using the direct cinema movement to capture the election of Kennedy and what you could kind of view as the beginning of the 60s and the new frontier. And I think something that should be in the registry uh, by the Maisels is a documentary that captures what many would consider the end of the 60s. Um, and that's, of course, uh, that the Maisels were... Uh, they were set out to make a documentary about the Rolling Stones, about some of their concert um, for Get Your Yaya's Out, Madison Square Garden, but also um, the concert that was meant to be the West Coast Woodstock uh, at Altamont Speedway. And anybody who knows anything about Altamont, of course, knows um, that they hired the Hells Angels to do security. Uh, someone may have pulled a weapon uh, and was, was stabbed to death, and this was captured on camera, um, and the Stones seemingly did not know what was happening at first. Um, one of the camera people at this, of course, is George Lucas. Uh, never forget, George Lucas uh, was worked on Jimmy Shelter. But yes, this is an extraordinary documentary because it is about the end of the 60s. It is about the end of an era... Uh, and what the Maisels do, I think that's so interesting in framing this, because we talk about direct cinema and and uh, how primary just shows the events that happen. One thing that makes Gimme Shelter so interesting is the framing device through which this film is viewed is the Rolling Stones in the editing room as they're putting together the film. Because, of course, Jagger and all of them were on stage when the murder happened. Um and you get to see Jagger going, hey, everybody, be cool, don't fight, nothing. But they didn't know what had happened yet. And so you get to see, like, Charlie Watts, like, watching the footage play of, of that they captured of this murder and, and that this happened during their show, you know, falsely reported to be during Sympathy for the Devil. But, you know, that, that comes up. Yeah, Gimme Shelter is is one of the greatest documentaries ever made, and it's, it's one of the greatest uh, concert films ever made. Uh, and, and manages to capture a moment in history that, that feels like one of those things that, that you know, could have been lost time. It, it just it represents the end of the 60s in an incredibly powerful way. Uh, Gimme Shelter is my pick for the registry. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Amanda Rush for joining us. Next week, it's a throwback Thursday to your first year of college. Clay Keller from the Screen Drafts Podcast joins us for 1925's The Freshman. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. Here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry. <laughs>